You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. On today's episode, I have Sam Schaefer on the line, owner and operator of Titanium Archery Products, to talk bow stabilization. After the background discussion, we actually first dive into vibration suppression and noise, which is really an interesting topic when it comes to deer hunting and one which deserves more research. Then we talk about bow stabilization and what the perceived benefits are for bow hunters specifically, how they can be measured, pitfalls to watch out for, and putting together a setup that actually works for you and really helps your balance and pulls in your groups rather than just attempting to band-aid an underlying issue without actually doing the proper steps to make sure that it's benefiting you as best as it can. It's a good discussion that definitely goes into the weeds a little bit at some points, but which one of my podcasts doesn't? So I hope you guys enjoy this one. Before we dive in, a quick note about Spartan Forge. Spartan Forge is a service which gives you deer movement prediction based on machine learning. What does that mean and how does it work? Well, in a nutshell, years worth of data, primarily from collared deer studies across the country, is fed into what's called a neural network. Essentially, it's computers that analyze the data and look for patterns. Those patterns might be increased or decreased movement based on rain, humidity, wind speed, temperatures, or a variety of other factors. Those factors might impact deer differently based on what region of the country it's taken from. And the computers don't really care why deer move more or less on certain conditions. They just recognize what happens and then apply those patterns to future outcomes for general deer movement. Spartan Forge is currently web-based, but an application is currently in the works will be beta tested shortly and likely will be released close to the hunting season. Use the code DIY for a discount on a Spartan Forge membership. All right, on the line right now with me, I have Sam Schaefer from Titanium Archery Products, otherwise known as TAP. And you guys may or may not have seen their products before, but they offer stabilizers, a few different ones, and we'll obviously get into details about you know some of maybe the different product lines or what they offer. Uh, but one of the things that sparked this discussion was I had been testing out some of the stabilizers from TAP and just kind of generally discussion of stabilization and how it applies to bow hunting, doing a lot of testing to see, is this something I can quantify? Is there a difference in group size? Is there a difference in how stable I'm able to hold? Am I able to measure those things? Is the bow 
quieter you know does the dampen the vibration like most bow hunters might think a stabilizer would do i've been trying to test all these things and i've been able to come up with some pretty conclusive uh data to the point where i really wanted to get sam on the line and just talk stabilizers and talk how they apply or may not apply to bow hunting in various scenarios and just really you know get into the weeds on certain things of what makes a good stabilizer well that sounds good to me that sounds like uh exactly my my line of work i mean what you're what you're dealing with there is uh a lot of what i do every day and i think this reinforces and we'll be able to illustrate that to people but this really reinforces a lot of the principles behind what we do absolutely uh why don't you go ahead and give the listeners just kind of a quick uh i guess condensed background about uh Mm -hmm. you and the company absolutely yeah i think a lot of people out there don't necessarily know a lot about us if anything and I, I realize that all the time, uh, even though I've been doing it now full time for five years. I, I think that, you know, it's easy to get uh, under the impression that maybe you've even reached uh, more people or you, your footprint is larger even than it might really be. When you, when you realize how big the bow hunting world is and just how many people are into archery. And uh, you know, I look at even in my own county, in my own state, and in Pennsylvania, and I think about that. And, and so it's important that we do give people uh, some background. So I'm, my name's Sam Schaefer, as you said, I own and, and operate, and that's important to, I think, to differentiate that, you know, I own and operate it. This is a very small operation. It's not uh, really what people would typically think of when, they, when you say a company. Uh, this is something that's operated from my own property. Now we do have a fairly expansive uh, property to work with, a good bit of acreage, and, and I have shooting ranges inside. And I have access to a lot of tools and area now that I need to, to do the work that I do. But it is very small in the whole scale of things. Uh, it all started back in 2016. So at that point, uh, it was even smaller, if you can imagine. And it was really more or less just the offspring of tinkering. And, uh, you know, that gave birth to some of these products that I was experimenting with early on. It was just stabilizers. And it was all related at that point to titanium alloy. And uh, the reason for that was some of the past work that I'd done in experimenting with high-performance softball bats and what could be done in retrofitting or, or actually having some aftermarket, I guess you could say, accessories or the shells uh, that we were putting on uh, double-wall bats and seeing just the amazing energy return property that was there with that. And then thinking about, well, how could that be used in stabilization? In part because it hadn't been done, in part because I knew there could be some advantages to it. So that's what gave, uh, you know, gave rise to me trying to find out what I could do and could I develop a prototype. And in early, I'd say early spring, I guess it was 2016, is when the suppressor, which is the first version I came up with, uh, that's when that became a, a thing that existed. And I, had, I shot it. I had a bunch of people I knew that were heavily into archery shoot it. And people were exclaiming that it was really good in di- uh, damping vibration. It was, it was obviously damping it down. It felt better. The bow was more dead. And, you know, so that was kind of what we chased early on. That seemed to be the thing. And so the products are being developed around that. And over time, uh, I started to do more work on looking at what really lends the archer the most 
control of the bow uh, does the most for the process of controlling recoil through the entire shot. Uh, not just getting you on target and being steady, not just calming your pen down, but also providing that, that control through those brief fleeting moments that your arrow is still on the arrow rest as it's leaving your bow. And uh, so that, that, that then led to other products, you know, the things that you see now. Carbon fiber has become part of what we use as far as stabilizers. Titanium is still involved in our quickness connects. We still have a uh, titanium stabilizer called the Element X. Uh, there's sidebar mounts now, there's string stops, there's cable guard tubes that we're putting out there. So the, it, it's it naturally, this is what happens with the company, and, and it's, it's my drive to constantly think of what can be improved and, and what else can be done that has led to all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can even remember, you know, for myself too, at the time, I had done some tinkering with stabilizers, just trying to build ones, you know, hardware store aluminum. Uh, which of course you're, you're very limited in terms of stiffness to weight ratio oh, yeah. and, and things like that. But, uh, and, and definitely on the rubber side of things too, if you, if you're trying to DIY, you know, softer materials, it's not always certainly as easy as what you've been able to do. <laughs> as yeah. I'm sure you're well aware uh, of. It's funny that you mentioned that because a lot of people, especially early on, people would say things like, well, uh, what you're doing, you know, we, I could do that too, right? I could just copy that. I mean, why would I need to buy it from you? I could just build my own. And to get to the point where you're using materials that are of sufficient quality and strength and weight to, you know, weight to strength ratio is a big factor, as you pointed out. But to get to the point where you can actually get your hands in those materials, you have to buy such quantities that, yeah, you can make a stabilizer for yourself. It might cost you about $500 in the end, at least, to be able to produce that one. But you could do it, at least, you know, in, in that scale of what you're looking at. So it's not as... It's not as simple as it might appear on the surface. You know, yes, the products themselves are relatively simplistic. Um, I often say that simple does not equate to a uh, lack of, of advancement, though, in design. Uh, simplicity is something I, I strive for, actually. I like it. I like uh, functionality, but I'm, I'm thinking about how we advance the material and get better in those regards, and that's what I've done all along. So... Yeah, so on the surface, it might look like just any other product out there. But uh, I can assure you there's some differences in, in internally as well, and I, we'll, we'll get around to that. But Vortex is a proprietary material that I created. That's inside of these stabilizers. No one else has that. No one else has the recipe, if you want to call it that, that I've come up with. And I guess from a performance standpoint, when we talk, I guess, specifically about stabilizers, you know, and this is obviously pretty true when we look at the target world, but it seems like key design parameters would be you'll want it to be as stiff as possible in as light of a weight package as possible, at least for the bar itself. Uh, you want it to have as small of a wind profile as possible, again, factoring in the stiffness aspect of it. Factoring that in, yes. Yeah, because yep. that definitely seems like a trade-off. And then It is. There's always a trade-off. And then probably yep. the third thing I would guess just be, you know, if you have a long stabilizer that doesn't really have any kind of vibration dampening properties it, it really seems to you know can even exaggerate um whatever's already already there in the bow you can it can amplify uh the way bow, way a bow resonates that's a fascinating subject in itself and how different bows have a, a different natural resonance and that's changed by whatever accessories you put on there 
there's many factors that go into play in determining how it ultimately is going to feel, how the stabilizer is going to impact what you perceive as the shooter. Um, I think it's important that you, that you noted that, that you have to find where the trade-off point is. Because if you think about it, you certainly can, can find higher modulus or a higher degree of rigidity materials than even what we're using now. But then you're also uh, exchanging that for too much added weight. So you have to find a point where there's the perfect compromise between the weight and the strength. Uh, you know, if you watch high-speed video of bows being shot, and you'll, you'll observe, especially in longer stabilizers, that they are flexing throughout that process. They're moving noticeably. Uh, that is something that people don't, don't realize in some cases. But it's impossible to completely limit uh, the flex of these. They're, you know, you want to get the, the strength to the highest point you can, but like I said, you have to find a place where that's feasible to, to make it work. A piece of steel rebar is obviously going to have a have a much more resistance to bending than a piece of carbon fiber will, but how much does it weigh? Right. You know, it's just, you know, and that's, I think when you look at where stabilization began in archery, that's essentially what people were doing at that point. It was just a hunk of steel and it offered very little beyond that. Yeah. And I guess just from a pure, you know, geometry standpoint, increasing I, I did some some numbers before this but i mean even changing from like a half inch bar to a five eighths inch bar mm-hmm. you know assuming a consistent wall it's like double the stiffness and of course you know yes. maybe 25 percent increased wind surface but i mean that's it, yeah but that's minimal really right, Unless you're right. significant significant winds now we're talking you know I, that, that would be a good uh area for you to look at down the line too is how much wind does it really take to push someone off to the point where we're seeing dramatically reduced accuracy. And that's, you know, all these tests are somewhat subjective. I get that. And, and as we get into your test that you did, you try to keep it as objective as you can, but it, it is hard to remove the human factor from it. But I would love to see, see that because, you know, people will talk about, well, I want the thinnest, the thinnest bar that's on the market. Right now that's about half an inch. Uh, I don't necessarily see a reason for us to drop from our five eights where we're at currently to half inch. Um, just to save that small amount of profile. You're right. The increase in strength is notable, and it's, it's worth keeping where we are. and allows us to use a thinner wall. And in this case, we're using a little bit thinner, um, but we're still stronger than that half-inch competitor that might be out there, and we're at a roughly the same weight. So uh, that's, yeah. that's where I want to be. Well, and just yeah. a comparison point, too, I had – a bar that w- that I had made out of aluminum that was, I don't know, it's about 12 inches long, half inch in diameter. And even mm. with like two ounces of weight up front, you know, the overall bars, I'd say similar in weight, but I put a piece of, you know, stealth strip or, you know, some type of a little bit of just vibration dampening external material on it. And it's almost mm. close to the same diameter anyways, but then you go ahead and just flick those weights and that thing just vibrates yeah. and it just, goes on and on and on whereas if you do the same thing with that that bigger carbon bar it's like you flick it and it's just dead like it just just dampens that much quicker dies very quick yeah so and that's another thing you're looking at trying to find the right balance on uh you know what level of response does the material need to be able to have to effectively kind of suck up that excess energy if you will but then not continue to resonate for too long 
beyond the shot. Because if you have that, then people get a perception that, you know, that that's, that's not favorable to have to feel vibration. And, you know, the focus is so heavily on that in archery. If you look at the marketing for bows, and what's one of the top things they talk about all the time? It's vibration. Is it really that big a factor in accuracy? I don't believe it is. <laughs> but I think people care. And they've told us to care about this. So that's part of what we do with stabilizers, is trying to figure out how to give people that added benefit, but also really keep the focus on what it's for. It's for enhancing accuracy. In my my mind, strongly in first place, that is where right. you need to keep the focus. Definitely, and yeah. I guess before we we jump off of that vibration topic, do you see? Because for me as a bow hunter, I, I would tend to agree that vibration in the hand really doesn't matter to me all that much if I can hit what I'm aiming at. But what does matter to me somewhat yeah. is, you know, what is the perceived sound level at where that deer is standing? Mm-hmm. Do you happen to see a correlation mm-hmm. between lower vibration and lower noise from like a a microphone that's set up downrange, or are those totally separate well, things? Done, uh, we've done a good bit of testing on that, and it's difficult to, in some cases, extract what is um, what is the most reliable data that you get from these. But we have seen some trends, and I've I talked to you earlier today about this. Where, uh, I have a flat response microphone um, that I believe is that's essential in being able to test because we don't want any kind of weighting being given to any particular frequency. We just want to see, strictly speaking, what's happening with the bow. And it it doesn't seem that post-shot residual vibration that you're going to be perceiving after the shot is really much of a factor at all in downrange noise. Um, It's just simply too low of amplitude to really be of significance. But, you know, the shot itself, obviously, when the string impacts, uh, the arrow traveling downrange has its own noise generation uh, concern. You know, you look at all the talk around broadheads, different types of fletching, uh, how much noise are they making? I think those are bigger factors, arrow noise, and then, of course, the initial, the initial loudest portion of the bow is noise. Anything that happens later, in my opinion, is much too late in the process to have impact on game from what we've seen. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think to that point, I remember seeing some graphs that you had posted of just frequency analysis on the the string stop mm-hmm. and you noted that at the higher frequencies which you know i have read that deer are more sensitive to than we are they, they hear about two octaves or the more sensitive about two octaves higher right. than we are uh, that you yep. you did see a reduction in the the peak amplitude at those higher frequencies yeah. yeah and that's that could be extremely relevant depending on if we can determine at what point are those frequencies dropping to a level that it would not pose a concern to an animal? And how do right. we really know that? That's really hard to, to discern at this point. Um, yes, they are reduced, but they also have lower energy anyway in terms of their ability to travel, especially through objects such as brush and anything that might be around you in the area that would potentially be absorbing sound. Uh, lower frequency is certainly capable of carrying much further. I mean, you think about a, a loud boom or a thunder clap or a gunshot. I mean, they, they really do travel tremendous. And same is true for radio waves. Uh, you, you know, so I, this is a fascinating area. This is really what I want to devote a lot of our future to in, in the company is looking at this particular subject. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I know that mm-hmm. at least in my testing there's things that certainly make a big difference, like uh, 
you know, what you can do to silence the bow and or what you can do to silence the arrow, you know, broadhead fletching, etc. Arrow weight yeah. seems to make a big difference, but even more so than arrow weight, more specifically arrow weight compared to your, your bow weight or grains per pound. I mean, my wife can shoot yeah, a 300 yeah. grain arrow significantly quieter oh, sure. than I can shoot a 500 grain yeah. arrow uh, because it's, it's moving so slow out of her bow. No. Just no. <laughs> you can barely hear no. it. But on, but on a heavier bow, you know, all things considered, I, I found that arrow weight, uh, I'd say arrow weight is probably the single most important thing um, in terms of just strictly reducing output of bow noise. And, and yes, we know that, the, that they're more efficient. I mean, that's been proven time and time again in terms of heavier arrow absorbing more of the stored energy of the bow. That, that's been seen in momentum. To, you know, how many times now have people got into the Ashby theories and all these things related to, to arrows and momentum and kinetic energy? And, and that's not a subject that we probably need to rehash, but, but it's true. They're more efficient. They do absorb more of that energy and they are quieter. Now, I found in my own experience as be, being a short draw person, I only have a 27 and about 27 inch draw. Uh, I, I try to chase as much uh, velocity as I can to be able to shoot the ranges that I like to in practice. You know, so it's hard to get a site set up to be able to take 80 to hundred yards if you don't have a certain amount of velocity. And then I like to carry that sort of shooting into my hunting season. So it's, it's the challenge at times to find the right place to come down on arrow weight. And then say, okay, this is, you know, I understand this is probably quieter. No, it's not probably, it is quieter. But I also don't get the velocity I need to, to obtain the flatter trajectory I want. You know, so it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, archery archery pre presents so many different uh, fascinating things to consider. I was just talking today about yoke tuning with somebody and saying, you know, it's just amazing how many different factors impact arrow flight and getting good arrow flight from a broadhead, fixed blade broadhead. It's just, it's amazing. Um, you know, constantly and endlessly fascinating. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I guess we could, we could pivot at this point to talk about, I guess more specifically what we originally were going to talk about, which was, uh, stabilization <laughs> and how much of sure. a difference and kind of the, the practical advantages you can right. get from it, from a bow hunting perspective. Obviously we all know that, it's essential pretty much for target archery. You never see a target archer who doesn't have stabilization on their bow. It's just a matter of, you know, what do they like? You know, zero balance or a little bit of bias, V bar, sidebar, et cetera. Um, but from a hunting standpoint, I guess I've kind of gone the gauntlet. I've in the past, especially when I've gone out West had systems where I had a front bar and a rear bar, uh, but haven't done quite the level of balancing and experimenting as I have done this year. I've also, done years where I have not run any stabilization, but taken the quiver off. I've had situations where I've not, uh, run any stabilizers, but left the quiver on. Uh, and I've also had, you know, points in time where I basically had everything on the bow, front bar, rear bar, quiver, etc. Um, and when you're shooting yep. at most of your animals that, you know, sub 15 yards in timber, obviously it is not as significant force, you know, maybe some people as others. Um, but I can definitely say from my testing, it is quantifiable. I mean, there absolutely is a group size difference. And there's also, I, I believe I can quantify a fatigue based difference based on how, how well you're able to shoot, you know, if you're more fatigued versus less fatigued with some of that extra stabilization on your bow. Yeah. 
That's interesting. So do you think that would potentially correlate to any type of fatigue or are we talking fatigue from shooting uh, excessive amount of arrows or, well, you know, we just, so I think it could be either mental, I'll, I'll call, I'll call some of it mental fatigue and some of it physical fatigue. Physical fatigue could be, you know, some of my testing, I shot 30 arrows consecutively and specifically mm -hmm. measured my stabilization scores on my Mantis X8 at shots 20 to 30 compared to shots zero through 10. And then there's mm -hmm. also kind of the, the qualitative, how does my pin float feel if I'm nervous, if I got somebody watching me and I got stabilization on the bow or I don't have stabilization on the bow. And just yeah. seeing how far, you know, that, that pin, how quickly it dances and how much it can kind of jump off center if you're nervous. Because uh, if you're just yeah. shooting, you know, some of my groups where I'm shooting very low pressure scenario, no wind, et cetera, like the difference is there, but it's not as substantial. Whereas if I am shooting yeah. under pressure, it seems like the pin, it just is a lot more calm under yeah. those scenarios with that extra stabilization. Uh, I'm not as likely to have bad shots go off as far. And it just seems like you're mentally able to control the shot a little bit better because that pin is, is calmer, much more so in those type of scenarios where you're maybe under mental stress than more relaxed shooting. Yeah, you, you make some excellent points there. It, it is a to, – to effectively, to effectively apply stabilization, you have to understand that it's, a, it's an entire um, spectrum – of psychological to some degree, yes, there's a lot of physical benefit to the product itself being deployed, but it is a whole package. I mean, you really have to understand that because think about once you get into the mentality of, of, of rushing shots or think about how target panic develops over time with people. I mean, I think a lot of it is just repeatedly doing the wrong thing and then sort of ingraining that into your muscle memory. Uh, by having things set up properly to begin with and not feeling some of those same uh, urges to punch the trigger or to rush the shot because the thing is so, it's so calm. The bow itself is calm. If you're not calm, at least the bow is. Um, and, you know, that, that all comes into play. It's hard to quantify. It. You're right. It, it, is, it is hard to completely uh, to put it into an objective way to explain to people. But when you have it right, and it's interesting you pointed out that you've run the gauntlet. That's good because a lot of people out there will, will assume that we're talking because you've always done this. This is how you've always approached bows. Uh, you, know, you set them up with you know, fully decked out, so to speak. Um, but a lot of guys out there have never attempted that and maybe are afraid to. And there's a lot of people that will say, I can shoot some pretty good, you know, really good groups at, at long range without stabilizers. Or, you know, I've heard that a lot, and I'll say anyone can shoot exceptional at times with any bow in any situation. How consistently can you shoot that way is really the question. And that's what you saw. Your results demonstrated that very clearly in, in my mind. The consistency that you're able to produce uh, average and above average accuracy is dramatically different when you have it set up right. When you have, uh, in my for me, it's essential to have a front and side stabilizer. I will not set up bows without them. I hunt the East Coast. I hunt in most situations where I have 30 yard and under shots. Do I absolutely have to have those on there to make those shots? No. But I, I go into the season confident because I've been shooting that way. Why would I change it at that point? I just adapt my routines. If I have to strap my bow on my pack, 
put a stabilizer or two into the pack while I work my way back into a spot that's you know, maybe a mile off, off the road. So be it. But to me, it's worth it to carry that extra product because I, that's where my confidence is. So, you know, you hit the nail on the head in a, bump, a bunch of respects. And I, I appreciate that you, you pointed those things out. Yeah. And I think another thing too, that I've definitely found helpful is when I'm doing these kind of comparative groups, I'm not just shooting like three or four shot groups at minimum. I, I don't consider it a group for this, for this particular type of testing, unless I have at least 12 shots in there. Cause it, even right. at like 80 yards, right. I can have no stabilizers on there and I'll string together three shots that you can put your hand around. Right. And it's like, man, I'm shooting pretty good yeah, with a stabilizer. Like, wow. You go home, you're like, I don't need a yeah. stabilizer, but then you shoot nine yep. more shots on top of that. And then you compare that to yep. a 12 shot group with the stabilizers and the, the one with stabilizers that have been balanced. It's always, and, and every time I've tested it, it has better. been better. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned too, when you have a shot where you, as the shot's being released, you know, you know, if the shot is, is good. I mean, as an archer who's had a lot of time in, it doesn't take long to, to you know, you, you realize whether you've, you've gotten that a pin settled correctly, you've pulled through the shot correctly. And in some cases you'll think, okay, that shot was not as true as I wanted it to be. Now with a good stabilizer setup, I have seen many times where I was fairly certain that it wasn't going to be a, a, as good a shot as I wanted. I've seen a lot of forgiveness in ultimate point of impact. And it almost makes me scratch my head at times and think, wow, how did I pull that off? Well, I have to say that I think that contributes mightily, is having it set up. It, even though you're doing something a little bit wrong on your end, you're helping to cancel that out to some degree. Yeah. Torquing, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, it's just part of the human error aspect of archery. We're trying to cancel that as much as we can. Right. And I think that's something where in a hunting environment that comes into play probably more than guys might originally think, because if you're shooting in your backyard at 20 yards and you're right. pretty dialed in, that's one thing. Uh, but now you're up in a tree and it's a little bit windy and your nerves are rattled. Then yep. that, that extra, I mean, it's, it's Anything translational stability and it's also rotational stability. And if you, even if you, you know, flinch a little bit, like it, it takes a lot more flinch to pull that bow off target. Uh, with that extra mass it, there in the right spots. Absolutely. And, and that can literally translate into, uh, you know, a, a wounded, hopefully a mortally wounded, but a wounded or, or, or a quick, you know, a quick kill, a very humane and ethical kill. That, that's what it can translate into in, in real application in the woods. And I can think of a scenario where I was public land hunting in Maryland a couple of years ago, bit, you know, best deer I had ever encountered in the woods. And, and, um, yeah, I was incredibly nervous. I had to draw back and hold for a long time. And in these public scenarios, these lands I hunt there, the deer look up a lot. And this deer had, for some reason, decided to turn and look. And I, I wasn't really in a position yet where I could shoot, so I had to hold and wait and wait and wait. Finally, he puts his head down, he starts walking, and I didn't want to alert them, you know, whistle or do any kind of grunt or anything. I thought, you know, I'm just going to track along. He's not moving too quick. Just walking, walking. But I was, I mean, my heart was going 100 miles an hour. I was still able to stay steady through the entire thing and pull off a good shot. And it, that's just not been my experience in the past before I understood how to use accessories like this. My, in the past, I think I might have, just to be honest, I might have botched that shot. Yeah. And I've, I guess we'll, we'll talk about some more accuracy-related stuff and then maybe practicality in the woods. But from an accuracy perspective, 
when I look at the the averages of a lot of the data I've collected and the group sizes I've collected, it seems like on the average, if I have a stabilizer setup that's giving me good balance, you know, front to back and side to side, I have to shoot a lot of shots to try and discern the difference. Um, but, but typically those are all, you know, still noticeably different than the unstabilized groups. Um, okay. when I, when I go in and I've looked at what are my best strings of shots versus worst strings of shots, you know, it's kind of interesting when I have a stabilizer setup that is for me, it seems like balanced roughly four to one with, you know, four, um, like let, let's say eight ounces in the back, two ounces in the front, uh, with like a 12 inch front bar and a, a 10 inch back bar. And, and trying yeah, to maintain, yeah, maintaining that balance. Like, it seems like that amount of weight for me, like it, it gives me some of my really good shots, you know, not very many poor shots, but it tends to be pretty repeatable and consistent overall. Whereas when I've taken those same length bars and I put out, say, you know, four ounces out front and a pound in the back hanging off that bar, and I look at what was my stability over my first five shots measured on like that Mantis X8. And it's like five mm -hmm. of the best shots out of all the testing that I, you know, had done. Right. But then I string that Not along and then look at shots 20 to 30 and mm -hmm. they were right back down to, you know, I would say on the low end of what I had been getting with the lighter overall setup, which to me seemed like, Hey, the balance is good. This has a really good potential, but it's just, but that fatigue with that little heavier setup, maybe that's a little bit too much mass for me. And maybe if I was shooting, you know, targets where I'm shooting one or two arrows at a time, that's probably what I would want to do. And, and, you know, it seems that way with a lot of the weights you see guys running on the tournament side of things. Uh, and you think from a hunting perspective, you're shooting one arrow typically, but you're also, you could be at full draw for a minute, like you said. So there's definitely a balance yeah, absolutely. there. And, you know, you, you can say, and it's true to some extent, when you have a bow properly set up and balanced, it doesn't feel as heavy as it will, as the actual mass weight is. If you put it on a scale, when you're at full draw, when you have it balanced out, it doesn't feel, it doesn't bear its weight quite as what you would expect it to. Nonetheless, it still does weigh what, whatever that happens to be. And if you're at full draw for any extended period of time, it absolutely will begin to impact you. So it might not be perceptible initially to you, or you may not think it, but it is a factor. So, yeah, you look at Vegas, you look at any indoor type of shoot where people are shooting a couple arrows, putting the bow down and able to recover and, and regroup a little bit. That's okay to run the kind of weight they do. I mean, you, you see people with several pounds uh, on, I've seen guys with like 30 ounces on a sidebar. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I, I so you it's true. It, it is capable of producing greater accuracy, but it is very limited in its application. That's something people will ask at times. They'll say, well, they'll call me and say, well, if weight's good, then if some weight's good, then more is better, right? Or if, if some length is good, then more is better. Generally on length, I agree. Use the longest you can manage. Uh, but weight, eh, it's very specific to the application. Yeah. And from that perspective, I'd, I'd rather use longer bars like as long as i'm comfortable with with less overall right. weight and get the same stability Absolutely. and that that seems to, to bear out pretty well um regarding like front weight versus rear weight and just kind of that overall front to back balance it's really obvious to me if my bow is too front heavy like i have too much weight out front compared to the back because number yeah. one when i come back to full draw that bow just it goes side to side and it just won't it takes forever for that pin mm -hmm. to stabilize 
and the bow just feels mm-hmm. so much heavier than it actually is because that center mass is moving further forward. However, Way out there. If I were to even like take the front bar off entirely and just run a sidebar with, with some of that weight further back, then that bow almost feels lighter than it does bear because the center mass has moved back. Exactly. Um, and I'm still able exactly. to get the balance, you know, left to right in that way. So a certain part of me, you know, looked at the, well, you know, how, how feasible was it for me to just sh- shoot a sidebar? And I, I think it's not, it's not outlandish to consider it actually. And it's good. You brought it up. I wouldn't have thought to brought it up. I, I, I've discussed it with a number of people recently, but people have asked about that and they'll say, well, can you do that? And that's, there really isn't anything you can't do. It works for you consistently in archery, but, but that's, that's a, a real option for some people to consider is drop the front bar entirely. If it, if it suits the scenario and consider what the side will do for you. I think it's more important than a lot of people are willing to recognize because in many cases people won't admit something's important if they haven't tried it or if they're afraid to try it or if it's just out of the realm of, of comfort for them. You know, and I think that's where bow hunters fall a lot of times when it comes to what we're talking about now. So I, I almost guarantee a lot of the people that, that hear things like this, that different podcasts I've been on, a lot of people will say, yeah, it all, they're making it sound good, but it's still, in my mind, something for the competitive guys. That's for the, the serious target archer types, or that's for your serious 3D guys. And I would strongly advocate and argue that that's, that's wrong. It's, it's for anyone. It's just a matter of how you use it. And you know, so that's, that's a consistent message I, I, I preach in every, everything I've ever been on, is don't look at this strictly uh, from that angle and be willing to embrace new things and try new products and try things that seem perhaps more advanced or maybe beyond your capabilities. I'm not saying you should, you should try to become proficient at shooting game at, you know, 80 to a hundred yards, but, but why wouldn't you want to become proficient shooting groups with field points at that range and then take that confidence into the hunting season? Right. Yeah. And I'll tell you where I kind of land on it, landed on it because I was, you know, if I knew I was just going to, like, all my shots for eternity were going to be sub-20, like, right. there's not enough difference for me where I could probably justify not work, not using bars. You know, even if I have to bias the grip I a little bit, I think it it, yeah. it works out well enough for me. But, I mean, you know, you get those shots every now and then. They're like 35, 40, and, and yeah, while I'd prefer them to be closer, yeah. I, I definitely feel more comfortable, especially if I'm rattled uh, with that extra, yes. the extra weight. And in terms of the you know, just sidebar versus front and back. It initially seemed like I was leaning toward the direction of not running a front bar. And the only reason, one of the, I guess, practical advantages of that was if I'm at full draw and I need to follow a deer while I'm at full draw, and that involves moving my bow past limbs that are in the tree, that I don't have to worry about the front bar mm-hmm. hitting those limbs. In reality, it's mm-hmm. very, very, it's low percentage that that would happen, but it is something that, I was thinking about theoretical. Sure. Yeah, it could happen. And I asked, I asked some of my other, not. my friends too, like, you know, Hey, have you ever run into this scenario? And you know, some of the guys I know that, that hunt at least as much, if not more than I do. And it's pretty rare for them too, that they run into that specific scenario. Um, yeah. Ground blinds, I guess too, which of course I'm never really hunting much out of a ground blind, but if I was tucked into a deadfall, if I got an arrow knocked and I haven't drawn back yet, then it's kind of a, you know, irrelevant point because the, the arrow is longer right. than the stabilizer. So it was more just one of those things if I was at full draw. Uh, but what yeah. I, what I noticed was, uh, the bow that I have right now, the V3 from Matthews, 
it comes with those engage, or I guess you can buy the optional engage limb legs that attach to the bottom limb pocket. Right. And yeah. just kind of, I guess, as a generalization, adding or removing stabilizers, adjusting your balance can affect the tune slightly and the point of impact. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed was if I just ran the sidebar and I used the engaged limb legs or didn't use them, it would affect my point of impact. However, if I had the front bar and the rear bar and I, you know, I shot a group like that this morning, 75 yards, and then I put the engaged limbs or the engaged legs on and I shot the same group. And it was almost like, if you didn't, if you didn't know that it was one setup versus the other, you would have thought it was just like nothing had changed. So the point of impact was the same, uh, vibration I did measure in my site was more, um, it, that vibration carried out longer with the legs on, but that kind of confirmed for me in my mind that I might as well set this up, make sure my tune is, you know, with the front and rear bar, I would make sure that my, you know, my point of impact and all of my pins, I'm, I'm doing everything based on that front and rear bar and that's it. And then I know that if I add those engaged limb legs, which I would probably do if I was hunting off the ground, that I would not be impacted there. Whereas if I did not run right. the front bar, I know there's a difference between if I have those legs on yeah. or, or not on. Mm, that is a deciding factor. Yeah. Mm. It's good. That, it's good. You took it that far to be able to discern that. And that, that I must say that what you've shown me in, in the data you've gathered, that's, that's beyond really anything I've seen from anyone uh, in trying to determine the ultimate impact of changing the setup the way you did and, trying longer front, longer back, you know, vice versa. And, you know, so I, I really value what you've been able to extract here. It's, it's very useful information. Yeah. It's been, it's been really helpful for me too. Cause I mean, even I, like a lot of times I fall into the trap of uh, when I'm trying stuff out, sometimes I will tr subconsciously form opinions on it before it's truly vetted out with data. You know, if I have yeah. a good day at the range and I was trying something new that day and it just worked really well, I'll think like, okay, right. I got it figured out. And then the next, you know, next day might not yeah. be the same. Um, but yeah. now I feel like I'm at a point where I have something that is very, it's consistent. I have something that's confidence in. I can look at the numbers and say, yep, this makes sense. Um, you know, even if I, if I feel worse about it the day of, and then I go back and look at the data, it's like, oh no, even that day it was, you know, this was better. Um, that's a, well, that that's definitely a confidence building <laughs> type of a thing. Yeah, and you do seem to be an empirical data kind of person, right, from what I can tell. Yeah. So, and so, yeah, that does seem to, to suit you well. Yeah. And and like we talked about earlier, originally I had it was the the seven or ten point seven five inch front and the six point seven five inch rear, and like I told you, just based on my testing, like I'm gonna send back that six point seven five and get a a twelve point yeah. seven five, yeah. you know, in return for it, because that's yep. I've I've yep. decided based on my style of hunting that a 12.75 inch front bar is not going to be much of a handicap for right. me except for extreme scenarios uh, i probably won't right. use the quick disconnect on the front just because that's an extra like two or three you ounces on, right on the bow that i don't right. really need, um, need nah. but i'll keep it obviously on the sidebar but yeah then you know close to 13 inch front close to 11 inch rear more weight on the, the rear than the front and that that setup for me is just like I said, I've, well, I've been shooting as good as, as any setup that I've ever shot um, right now. So, well, what, what you just talked about there is becoming surprisingly uh, more favored by more, by more people that are reaching out to me and more customers on their own are actually gravitating towards 
1275, or even if you look at the 1075 plus the QD, you're out around the same length. You're at 12 and 5 eighths, actually, when you add those two together. But that is, a, that's a significant shift uh, as compared to, say, two to three years ago. There are a lot of people now, now it's still far in the minority, of course, but there are a lot more archers, bow hunters that are considering it at least, and then making the attempt to see what it does. Whereas it was a much higher uh, mountain to climb when I started this, uh, especially in my own area. Now, Pennsylvania, I mean, York County, Pennsylvania, uh, it's, it's a big bow hunting area. The whole state has a lot of, a lot of hunters, but it is also very set in some old school methods, I guess you could say. And it's rare to see anyone bow hunting in the field with a side stabilizer or even a very long front stabilizer. And, you know, certainly when I started in 2016, 2017 period, you, you rarely saw that. Now it's becoming considerably more common, at least in my interactions with people that I talk to and, and some of the people that I deal with in this area too. That's encouraging because that, well, obviously for my business, but it just shows that people are embracing the concept and uh, they realize that, hey, it, it can be managed. Yes, it's a little bit awkward at first to have a, to have a stabilizer that long. But going from, say, for example, I, I often use this, and not I don't like the Bash brands or anything like that, but, but uh, you know, the, the Sims, the Sims Vibration Laboratory, they had a little S-coil. And I'm not, you know, putting it down. It's a great vibration damper. But I, often guys would put that on and say, that, that's my stabilizer. Well, that thing was about four and a half inches long. Um, you, you know, nothing is being stabilized with that. Yes, you are damping some, some vibration. You know, so that's, so, so getting somebody to go from there, which is what I often saw around here to what you're talking about in a 1275 on the front. That's a, that's a quantum leap, but more people are embracing it. So it's happening. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's like the difference between yeah. an Olympic recurve and, and barebow. It's like the barebow guys will still yeah. put mass on their riser, you know, to help with right. that translational stability, but it's not doing much no. for the rotational stability. Not, I don't know how it could. It's not positioned correctly. <laughs> so, yeah. And I guess from a practicality standpoint, two things that actually are, I think are a benefit for hunting is if you're carrying the bow in, if you have a long enough front bar, you can drape that bow over your shoulders and just kind of put your hand up on the, the front bar and hold it in place. It's a really comfortable walking position for yep. making long hikes in. Uh, the yep. sidebar seems like it never really gets in the way. But one interesting thing about that little bit longer sidebar that I found is if I'm holding the bow up at just kind of a ready position, I can stick the back of that sidebar into my, the crease of my hip and take the, the weight off of my yeah. arm a little bit and just kind of hold it there. And then if I'm waiting for that, you can. if I'm waiting for that buck to, you know, walk in that next three steps and he's just kind of sitting there frozen, like I can sit there forever and not really get tired holding that bow up at the ready. Well, that's a, that's an old 3d, that's a 3d a trick, 3d archery, you know, competitors typically would do things like that with their longer sidebars, you know, press them into their, to their hip. Uh, the really long front bars typically end up in the ground as, yeah. as a way to support the bow. <laughs> and I, I, I see that a lot too. But, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of, there's, there can be benefit and it can be used as a handle essentially, like you're saying. So it doesn't have to be taken off to get to be gotten out of the way. Although depending how far out your bar is, yeah, you may want to consider if you're not using it as a handle, you may want to consider a, a quick disconnect to be able to pop it off quickly, or you're just going to end up having to unthread it all the way and put it into a bag. It depends on kind of what kind of terrain you're going through. I mean, I can think of this buck that I had killed and, and getting it back out. Uh, along with all my gear, it was absolute nightmare. 
And yeah, I, I, everything I could get off my bow and into the pack and out of the way I did. I, I wish I could, but I got my sight completely off. But, you know, that's only extreme circumstances like that. Yeah. So what is your, your personal setup? What kind of bars do you like to hunt with? Well, currently what I'm using and what I've been using for the most part the last couple of years, uh, it's a DOA, that DOA stabilizer. That is far and away the most popular one, and, and I feel it's, it suits the best range of, of hunting scenarios. I'm using a 10.75 on the front plus a QD, so I'm out at 12.58, two ounces on the front. On the PSE EVL32, that's the bow I'm shooting most. I use five ounces right now on the side. On my Carbon Stealth, I have a PSE Carbon Stealth. That's a nice uh, hunting bow, too. I'm not sure which one ultimately we'll use uh, throughout, throughout the season. I may use that other one a couple times. Uh, that, I use like seven ounces on my side there. So that, that, that's a lighter bow overall, a little jumpier, needs a little more taming. Uh, I don't quite go up to the point where I like that you are with eight. I just, in most cases, I don't really see a lot of additional benefit from the extra ounce or two. So I usually stay around six or seven tops. Gotcha. Well, that's a good, important point too, that people can't just arbitrarily try and copy what somebody else's setup is. They got to play around no, with what works can't. best for their form and their bow. It's so, yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's very individual. And to see someone shooting a certain method or product or, uh, you know, set up or particular application you can take you know generalities from that and you should but but please if you get products like this take your time to work through the process of going from say a one to two ratio up to maybe a one to four like you mentioned often, you know when you buy a bundle from us you get two ounces in the front four on the side where well, you're at one to two right there one to two ratio that's a good starting point but don't assume that that's where it's it's dialed in for everyone just play with it shoot put time in on the range. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. In terms of, uh, I guess, yeah, I mean, setting those up and balancing them, you know, if a guy's going to buy some bars to test out, I mean, what, what in your mind is kind of the process for, you know, you get them out of the box, you put them on the bow, then what? <laughs> well, here's what I'll tell you not to do. A lot of people, what they do right off the bat is they're in a situation where they can't immediately shoot it in many cases. It might be right, let's say it's in their living room, and they're just setting it up right there. They'll, they'll, they'll pick it up, and they'll hold it in their hand. They won't draw the bow because, you know, in most cases, you're not drawing it inside or you're not putting an arrow on, you know, on, on the string to draw. But they're just holding the bow. And I, I think there's limited benefit. There's limited gain in seeing how it holds just in your hand like that. Uh, you know, the ultimate tell is, is what is being, what's occurring at point of impact and how consistent you're shooting. But the next, the next most important thing is what is it, what's happening when you, as you're getting to full draw, as you're getting to your anchor point, and then you're looking down through your peep and you're looking at your, your, your sight housing, how, how natural does that feel? Uh, how natural is the level, is the bubble? I'm assuming you have one, uh, most sites do now. Where's the bubble? Is it finding its way more naturally to the middle or are you having to force it? Those are really the more important aspects. So, so put it on and, and then begin to, to consider making changes after you've seen that. But uh, oftentimes people will go to a bow shop, for example, and they'll, they'll put a, a bow on a balancer and they'll balance the bow out with the stabilizers and weights in this balancing jig. I don't 
to me, I, I just feel that that's not really that valuable. That doesn't tell you a lot. The same as holding, just holding it up in front of you. It doesn't. So it might feel great. You might be stoked. You might be excited to shoot and get out there and you, and you feel like it's going to improve your accuracy and it probably will, but the wait until you get it actually set up and you're on the range and you're flinging a few arrows until you're making a judgment calls. Yeah. I was listening to, I guess, a lot of different target archers, you know, when they're on podcasts or just their opinions on how they set it up and what their philosophies are. And it seemed like for the most part, a lot of them were trying to chase that kind of neutral setup uh, to where they could close their eyes, mm-hmm. come back to full draw, open them up when the bubble would be level and their pins not like hopping up out of the center. And it's not really drop, you know, dipping out of the target. Um, it seemed like there's a few guys who intentionally tried to put a, a bias in so that they could like force their way against them. It seemed like those guys were, were a little bit less, less common. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you would want to induce a bias of, uh, of, of any particular type. I, I would say as neutral as possible would be ideal. Um, but I don't – depends on the bow. I mean, true truth of the matter is I've set up several bows different ways. And when you, when you reach a point where you're at just a level of confidence and comfort with that particular setup and with where it anchors and with where it draws and with how it settles on target and with you not up or down, left or right, you know when you've felt that. You know when you see it. You know with, when, when, when you wake up one day and you shoot that way and the next day you're shooting that way. So there's no way for me to quantify or explain that. But that's, what it, that's where you have to get to. Um, I know it sounds like sort of a, you know, a, a non-answer answer, but it, that's the truth. Right? There, isn't, there isn't a formula. There isn't a way. Some people have asked, well, how do you dial in the weights? Is there a formula for that? No, and I don't have a book that I can look up the V3 or the VXR or any other bow and tell you what is necessarily ideal for you, but I have a good idea based on experience, and then you take it from there. So it is, to me, archery is just 100% individualized and subjective. Yeah. And if you make it work, I am not, I'm not the guy that's going to tell you you're wrong. If it works and you're consistent with it, great. One thing I'll throw in there, and maybe you agree with this too, is that a guy's probably not going to get his best benefit out of adding stabilizers if he's already got a major issue with his draw length or some other form-related oh. thing. Fix that first, oh, and then yeah. and then at, once you've got that figured out, then add the, the stabilizers. I'm really, really glad you mentioned that. Draw length, I think, is one of the biggest issues that I see is not being correct. So I will at times say that to people. Uh, if the draw length is off and you're fighting, the stabilizers are going to do so little to rectify that problem that you're going to get frustrated with, you know, and thinking that that, that, that didn't contribute, that didn't fix the issue when you have a bigger core issue, a bigger problem under, underlying all of this. So if it's a massive tune issue, you know, you have timing, cam timing problems, something along those lines. Your arrow is wildly out of spine for the weight you're shooting and then in the tip or maybe you're using inserts whatever it might be, get those things squared away. You know, and I see that a lot. I see people looking for solutions. They want a solution to a problem when, when it may be so far beyond what that product could possibly offer the person. And then it just ultimately makes the product look ineffective. Oh yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a bandaid to the issue. It's like the people that go into the the health store and buy weight loss pills when they really need a gym membership. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, we could, we could apply this to other archery products too. You want to get into broadheads, for example, Uh, fixed blade versus mechanicals. I mean, 
and some people consider mechanicals a Band-Aid. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily going to say they are, but they do to some degree cover up issues that might exist. You know, so there's a lot of ways uh, to look at that and say, you know, like, how, do we, how do we know we're really doing the necessary corrective action here for this particular bow and, and this, this setup? All things, you know, being ruled out as problems, though, other than uh, adding stability. Okay, n now we're at a good place. Now, if you're confident everything is right for all length, for all weight, the bow is really ideal, ideally suited for the way you shoot. I mean, some people complain about grips. They say the grip isn't right for them. Uh, you know, all these things have to be correct first. Uh, but bottom line, we're not going to take someone who's not capable of hair-splitting accuracy and make them into a champion archer with stabilizers. You, you have to have the fundamentals down first and, and be good. And, right. I, and that's just a simple fact. Right. So I, I guess in, in summary then, in terms of stabilizers, even for you know the bow hunters out there, it's tough to argue that they do improve a lot of aspects of your shooting, um, which can be measured. And whether or not you feel that you're accurate enough without them is, I guess, a matter of personal opinion. But the fact that they can improve your shooting is, right. is less a matter of opinion. I think more inar inarguable. Yeah. I would say pretty inarguable. Yeah, that it, that it can. So, you know, and, and again, like you said earlier, competition level archers are never going to, to, to walk away from high-end stabilization setups because they know that it is a game of, of small fractions of inches and they are making that up with these products, these products on their bow. So, so it's inarguable, but what is arguable is whether or not it's a need for any individual bow hunter. And to what degree? Because of the, you know, you you only really know listeners out there and, and guys that are that are contemplating this. You really know ultimately whether this is going to be applicable to your situation, based on how well you've been shooting, where you, you envision yourself going, distance-wise. Uh, that's you know, so you have to make that that call. But it, it absolutely can help. Just just deploy it the correct way, right? And, and be. You know, and be and be open too to instruction from people. You know, if you haven't done this and you have friends that do, uh, at least consider what they have to say, how they've set it up. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always, I'm always picking the brains of people I know that are better archers than me just to try and figure out what I might be able to pick up. Yeah, in some cases they can help. In some cases they'll say, "Hey, this is, this is an innate, inherent ability that I have." I'm really good at archery. I don't even know why. There's a lot of guys I've met like that. They're just good. They, 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 they just, you, any bow you hand them, they shoot it extremely well. Um, and those people are awesome, and I wish I was more like that. But, but, uh, but no, I, I think what you did in, in, in looking at this is, is great. It's eye-opening for some people. And it's certainly going to at least make some people think maybe a little more deeply about the topic. Yeah, absolutely. That's the goal. So I guess yep. I think we covered a whole lot of the stuff that I wanted to cover. Can you think of any other things you wanted to touch on? Uh, no, you covered a lot. I mean, I think that um, having people who are going to look in on this and shine some light on this from what is seen from a more unbiased perspective 
is really important. It, it's tough to disseminate information coming from a company's perspective and have it be taken uh, fully uh, as intended from us because it's always going to be seen as, well, you're just trying to sell product. And obviously, to keep the company going, I do need to do that. But I, when I put information out, it's as genuine as I can make it. But it's great. It's much, much better to have other sources like yourself, uh, anyone who gives us any kind of uh, feedback from a more neutral standpoint. It, it's great. And, uh, and I, I can't thank you enough for doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you uh, jumping on the podcast. Appreciate you taking the time out of your day. I think this will... This, along with the video, should help uh, hopefully a lot of people. I think so, and that's the goal. We're, we're trying to help help people become better archers, better bow hunters, and you know, and it's really pretty much as simple as that. All right. Well, I think uh, I think with that we can probably call it a podcast. Um, yeah, I guess cool, I guess one last cool. last thing I'll, I'll ask is. Um, if people want to learn more about your products or get in touch with you, have some questions, whatever, where can people uh, go to reach out? Well, the first thing they should do is check our website out, titaniumarcherproducts.com. Uh, also, our Instagram and our Facebook are really active, and that is the primary means of, of generating promotional content uh, and, and really advertising for our products. Is, you know, we, we sell direct-to-consumer only, so we're really not going to walk into your local shop and see us and, and that's the way to learn is to go online okay great well mm -hmm. once again appreciate it you have a good rest of your day thanks you too that'll do it for this episode as always make sure to follow the sportsman's nation on facebook instagram and youtube leave us a review on itunes and if you're looking for additional content subscribe to diy sportsman and with that thanks for listening